When filmmaker Jean-Pierre Regis began his career in journalism, working for MTV and CNN, he never planned on directing a feature-length film. This all changed when Jean-Pierre's 75-year-old mother was fired from her lifelong job as a hotel housekeeper. My anxiety was very high. You know, what is my mom going to do? And as sort of the hours went on, I started to think about this job was everything to this woman, you know, um, always, always had been. What is she going to do without it? How is she going to survive financially? How is she going to survive mentally? You know, who is her support system? Like all of those questions really started to flood in. And that was the point at which my mind really went into sort of like journalist mode, like I want all of the answers. Jean-Pierre began filming the events that transpired as his mother lost her job and struggled to find economic security. Unbeknownst to him, Jean-Pierre was filming what would years later become his first feature-length documentary, Duty Free. The film follows Jean-Pierre as he takes his mother on a bucket list adventure, doing many of the things that she missed out on when she was working while also examining the challenges of economic insecurity that many people of her generation are facing. The film would go on to play in theaters nationwide, have its broadcast debut on PBS Independent Lens, and receive a prestigious IDA Award nomination. But many challenges were faced before the project was completed. Coming up, this is how Jean-Pierre independently produced Duty Free. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with director Sean Pierre. Usually we start these things by saying something like, Sean Pierre, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> the artifice is real, isn't it? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a pleasure to discuss your film, Duty Free, which, of course, was distributed, I believe, in 2021. But I think sometimes it can be really useful to look back in retrospect when you're not in the middle of the storm trying to figure out how to create this film and distribute it. But before we do, where does the journey begin? You, you became a journalist first. Did, is that something... That was always your goal to become a journalist or some type of storyteller? Uh, yes, in a way. I was always, I always wanted to be an MTV VJ, which I hope you remember so I don't date myself hey, too I'm much. I'm right there with you. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> right so you're like, I'm going to be Carson Daly when I grow up. Exactly. Game over. That's exactly. Me. I'm going to be Carson Daly or I'm going to be Ryan Seacrest. And that was always the goal. And so I left college and um, started as an assistant in the news department at BET, which is um, Viacom, and uh, worked my way up to being on TV. Um, And I did that for a few years and sort of started to build on the stories that I wanted to tell, Um, started to kind of hone my voice in some ways. And then I moved on to MTV and CNN, being on camera at both of those places, interviewing celebrities, but also being out in the streets for like Black Lives Matter movements, interviewing um, some of the protesters, et cetera, um, and, and just loved telling stories. Um, I just never realized that I would be able to turn the camera on myself and my family to tell ours. Did you ever have aspirations to become a feature filmmaker or was that not even on the radar? Never on the radar. Never on the radar. Okay. I think the probably the most I ever thought that I I would be involved in film would be that I would be in them. You know, like I think I always, when I was younger, 
part of the reason I wanted to be on TV was to be seen, you know, um, to sort of connect with an audience. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll be an actor. And I acted through college and um, acted after college and sort of thought maybe I would take that route. Never did I think that I would actually direct a film. I didn't even, I mean, even starting with Duty Free, I was trying to offer the directing job up. Like, I really thought somebody else should do it. You You're know? like, not interested. Yeah, or I just thought, I can't do this. Like, what? I don't even know what directing means, you know? So you're working as a journalist, and I don't know how many years, but a bunch of years, and then you receive information from your mother that kind of catapults you yes. into this new space of filmmaking you never expected. Can you explain yes. what happened? So I'd been at CNN and HLN for two years at that point and started to get some calls from my mom that she was feeling like kind of pushed out at work, right? They were taking responsibilities away from her. They were questioning her. And this is a woman who not only lived in the building for about 40 years, but had built that hotel truly um, from the ground up um, for the last, you know, 10, 12 years. And so to me, I, it just didn't make sense. It didn't add up. When you say built it from the ground up, can you elaborate just in terms of the kind of work she was doing? Yes. So um, my mom throughout my entire life was always an executive housekeeper at different hotels in Boston. Um, and I, we were raised in the YWCA building in Boston. The YWCA turned the building into a for-profit entity to make money, which some nonprofits do. And they thought a strategy would be to create a hotel within this building that they had because it was really centrally located to everything in Boston. And they thought, well, we've never run a hotel before, but we do know this woman who lives in this building who has run, you know, the back end of the house for so many hotels. Um, and so they hired my mom um, to run the hotel and literally turn rooms that used to be offices into hotel rooms. So she had been working there for 12 years, got all of these calls, kept calling me. I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, I got a call one day that just said, I'm fired. Call me. Bye. When you get in touch with her, what are you thinking at the time? Do you remember how you're feeling? Oh, my God, yes. My knees sort of caved. You know, I just sort of like... I didn't fall to the floor, but I practically fell to the floor only because I was far away at the time. I received the call when I was in Paris. So I felt really like I couldn't be helpful to her at that moment, like truly like sit beside her and work through it. And so my anxiety was very high. You know, what is my mom going to do? And as sort of the hours went on, I started to think about, wow, this is every, this job was everything to this woman, you know, um, always, always had been. What is she going to do without it? How is she going to survive financially? How is she going to survive mentally? You know, who is her support system? Like all of those questions really started to flood in. And then the anger started to flood in, you know, sort of like, what? This doesn't make sense. Why? You know, and that was the point at which my mind really went into sort of like journalist mode. Like, I want all of the answers. I'm going to uncover, um, turn over every rock and figure this out. And that really started the film in earnest. Carson Daly never did that. Never did that. That's right. It's funny, though. I mean, it's Maybe he did. I honestly don't know. I, maybe right. he did. I mean, I was always more like the MTV News person versus like the TRL person. I, I always you. cared about like social justice, you know. Um, and so 
So yeah, it's definitely a step up, I think, from what I always dreamed I could be. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Just wanted to point that yeah, out. No shade to Carson good. Daly. That's right. We all love him. He's <laughs> yes. a legend. But, exactly. But uh, to, to go back to that, so you talk about kind of this feeling of helplessness, which I think a lot of us feel when we get to the age that you know one of our parents is on their own. How do you negotiate that in your mind when you're saying, okay, I'm angry, I want answers? At what point do you go from, I need to take care of my mother to, oh yeah, and also we're gonna make this huge feature film over the years? That's a great question. So initially, when I started to get the calls, I did go home to Boston and tape my mom telling me what was going on. And I always did that just because I wanted some level of of proof, of testimony from her about what exactly was happening. And so I had sort of, you know, recorded her complaints. I also was able to uh, shoot her on the job while she was still working. Um, I had the sort of foresight to say, take me through a room. Let me see how, you know, good you are at your job. Like, I want to see you go through and do this. Like, it was all for proof. It was all the journalist in me. And then after she was fired was when I started to sort of to your point, there was a role reversal. Like I started to essentially be her advocate in a way that she was always my advocate growing up, right? If there was ever an issue at school or ever, you know, something I couldn't figure out, my mom was there to step to the plate and ask the questions that needed to be asked. And so when she was fired, my gut was part journalist. Yes, I want to know the answers, but part defender, part advocate to say, I want, my mom's not signing any papers, and I actually have extra questions for you. So you're going to need to speak to me about exactly what went down. And that's how it happened. Um, and I would begin to interface with the people who fired her just to get more more info. And this entire film, Duty Free, took so many turns, you know, behind the scenes in terms of like what exactly the story was that I was trying to tell. So because it's a personal story, so much of it depends on how I'm doing personally as the director, right? Like what or how my mom is doing and how we're doing that together. Like how are we processing what is going on? And so the film at first was, you know, burn it all down, you know, call out the YWCA, you know, scream eight discrimination from the rooftops. But then as we went on these journeys, we go on a bucket list adventure to do everything my mom wasn't able to do while she was working within the film, um, sort of lift her spirits. Then it became a film about love and connection and what makes a life and regrets. And so the, 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 the biggest challenge and task of the film was to try and weave together those storylines and have it processed, um, even though I was processing it in the making of the film. I'm glad you brought that up because as I was watching it, that was one of my biggest questions. Because it would have been very easy and rightfully so to make a strictly a film about anger, going from your core feelings and emotions of the moment. But I think what happens is you talk about this bucket list that's kind of the hook of the film, even if that's not ultimately what it's about. I think for a lot of people, they hear about someone who never got to do the things they wanted to and starting to actually realize there's more to life than work and it, and it happens. How are you as a filmmaker negotiating yourself as a son versus someone who's writing this story in real time. Is is that complicated to do? Yes. I mean, so many, I mean, yes. There were so many times that I was filming my mom and I shot 
a good amount of the film, though I was able to hire a crew later on to shoot particularly the bucket list adventures. But in the really deepest, personal, most intimate moments that you see in the film, that's me shooting that. And it is very hard to watch your mom, you know, suffer, cry, um, be so emotional in front of you and not want to put down the camera and, you know, give her a hug, give her space, you know, all of that. Um, and so there was a constant battle with myself to say, like, why are you shooting this right now? Put down the camera, you know, you know, be here with her without this sort of this lens. But so often I thought, well, if somebody else can see her pain at being disposed of so late in life um, for no reason, that is that opens up the world for so many people to know that they're not alone, right? That that they sh- sh- her story is their story, and so and so I did that. I just kept shooting, and when the camera was down, really kind of took time to be there with her because that's what she needed. But it was definitely a hard it was a hard struggle for me. You mentioned when you start out filming, you're doing that yourself. And you're kind of finding the story as you go. At first, it starts out as these interviews with your mom just about what's happening, what has just transpired. At what point does the bucket list, as we said, become kind of this device to tell this larger story, at least one of the devices? Yeah, well, initially, I started shooting not knowing that it would be a feature film. So I just thought, let me, again, let me get her testimony. Then it became, okay, mom, like thinking of really crazy ideas that would take her away from her sadness. Um, and and then I thought, okay, how do we go even bigger? You know, I always thought, oh, I would just shoot like her milking a cow or I would shoot her, you know, baking a cake, whatever. Um, and those would be sort of these five minute episodes, you know, these small like little bits of mom goes on an adventure, you know. Right, like little vignettes exactly. kind of. Exactly. And then you know, with the weight of the firing and her trying to get back on her feet, um, because she does need a new job, she cannot afford to sort of live without a job. Um, I thought, okay, this is actually so nuanced. There's so much here. There's this sort of these dreamlike opportunities to go skydiving and to go, you know, you know, make amends with her family in England. Like these are like moments of fantasy almost, moments that most people don't actually get to ever do. Um but then there's the harsh reality of her real life that she had two weeks pay when she was fired, that she had to leave the apartment that we had lived in for 40 years, that she needed a job. And so the film really kind of just swerves back and forth to saying, this is this dream life that love and intergenerational care can bring you, this bucket list adventure, this like your best self. But the reality of the situation is that most people won't have that experience and that this is their lived reality is trying to find a job, trying to figure out how they're going to live day to day. And so in the selling of the film and the marketing of the film, it was always important to front the bucket list because as you say, right, like that's the thing that's going to get people into theaters. That's the thing that's going to get people to dream. That's the thing that's going to get people to feel like they can escape. But it was important for me that the film also showed the real realities of Uh, financially insecure older people in this country. So you started filming this alone and that you said that over the span of time, you kind of start working with the crew. 
At what point does funding come into play, and how do you cultivate that enough to keep the momentum going to film over? How many years was this shadow? Five years. Yeah, yeah, you did your time. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I did. Um, so I had initially crowdfunded. So I raised sixty thousand dollars for our first real bucket list shoots. Um, and I went to Kickstarter. I told everybody that I wanted to make this film about my mom and I had shot some of it already. I showed a really early trailer, talked about the film, the importance of sort of intergenerational care and ageism and all of that. Raised $60,000 within a month, which was amazing. We went viral with that early trailer. It was seen 36 million times on Facebook. Um, so that really helped uh, sort of kickstart our community quite literally. Can I just ask how you're saying that very nonchalantly, which I respect. <laughs> you're like, no big deal. But how does how do you go from starting a Kickstarter to all of a sudden, 136 million engagements. 36 million. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, it wasn't I as big as you thought it was. Yeah. I'm like, two billion <laughs> yeah, exactly. views a second. Only 36 million yeah. views. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a few things. Um, I'm really savvy. Obviously, I've worked in news for a while, as I mentioned. And so I'm really savvy about news hooks. And I'm really savvy about, you know, what is going to make people um, share, talk, um, click. Um, and so I had dropped the trailer and started the Kickstarter right around Mother's Day, uh, knowing that that would be a hook. Um, for people to be like, oh my God, this beautiful story of this ultimate bucket list adventure, you know? Um, and the news picked it up. I mean, we were on CBS Sunday morning in 2017. We were um, on Now This. I mean, just like everywhere. Um, and yeah, so that's that's how I did it. it. It sounds simpler than I guess it was. It took so much pre-thought and strategy and connections and emailing people and pleading with people for money. I mean, doing a crowdfunding campaign is very difficult and it definitely takes a lot of time, but it is so worth it because then you're off to the races with, for, in my example, $60,000 to really start to shoot a film, particularly as a first-time filmmaker. Like That gives you so much license to go and do something on your own terms, which I think a lot of filmmakers don't often get, right? If you're getting $60,000 of investment from somebody um, or you're co-producing co something, then you already have somebody in your ear, you know, requiring you to do this or that. Um, crowdfunding gives you the ability to be free um, as a creative. Um, and so I was really happy that we, we went that route. And then I got an investment um, of $100,000 and then um, raised all the rest through donations. So some were public donations, some were high wealth individuals who just donated uh, tons of money. Um, and and is I, the, I cobbled it together that way. And is the investment of $100,000 from a private investor as well? Yes. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you, so you've cobbled together this money and as a first time filmmaker, are you debating how you should spend this money, how, you know, what is the trajectory? I guess, is there a plan? Like, obviously you've, you cultivate the story a bit and you're like, we're gonna go on a bucket list. Mm -hmm. But this story has many layers to it. It obviously very greatly sustains itself for the duration of a feature length. And to do that, you know, there's a lot of script writing happening. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work in the editing room. How, as a first-time filmmaker, are you deciding on what steps to take? Oh, my God, Jacob. <laughs> it was a... Are you having a flashback? Seriously. <laughs> um, you know, I always... I guess I'll start by saying I always deeply believed that I could make a feature film and that um, it would be strong. 
Um, and I don't know if that was because I believed in myself so deeply. I believed in my mom and her story so deeply. I had believed that there was an audience for it because when we, the crowdfunding campaign proved, you know, to me that there were people who saw themselves in their, my mom's story and wanted that story to be told. And that's why they donated money, right? So for those three reasons, I kind of was like, I'm, I'm going to do this. But as I said before, trying to figure out like the tone of the piece, trying to figure out like how do we go back and forth from these dreamlike scapes to her reality um, without it feeling too um, methodical, if you will, without it getting boring or trying or tired um, after a while. That was really the process. How to make you respect my mom and respect the decisions that she made in life, respect, you know, versus sort of either pitying her or anything like that. So there was a lot of like, there was a lot. I mean, there's a lot to just like sift through. And that's why you have a team, right? I had collaborators, I had editors, I had a producer, I had, you know, people that I could really talk to who could be objective about the pieces that I couldn't be objective about. And I leaned on them to help me tell the story. When you built up that team, was a lot of that a result of the connections you had made throughout your years as a journalist? Or was this going into new waters? All new waters. Okay. I didn't know any of these people but one from my news background. Um, there are different worlds. The funding is different. The types of editors you get are different. The types of producers are different. I mean, it's also different. Um, and so I had met my producer um, through a friend, and uh, she had just left a big gig in... Silicon Valley and was looking to do something new and I trusted her and she believed in me and so we thought we're both hustlers we can make this happen um, so it was her first film too, being a producer and then through friends met our editor and it just like it went that way I was a part of a couple media uh, doc labs they helped me sort of expand my network of firelight and film independent um, and it was just a lot of learning a lot of asking questions a lot of asking for help at every stage Stage, not being too proud um, and just telling people what I was doing because people love to help, don't they? I mean, sometimes the help is not helpful. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> Depends how we define yeah, help. Let's exactly. start there. <laughs> but hey, it's always great to get the help um, or get the suggestions and then you can decide whether True. you want to work with these people or not. Um, and so I was not I was not the person to be shy about telling people what I was working on and asking for, for help. I mean, I think what's phenomenal about this film, aside from just it being a great film, is the fact that there was such a wide reach and the distribution is kind of amazing from a first-time filmmaker. And I don't, I feel like I keep saying first-time filmmaker, mm -hmm. that could sound condescending, but I just mean it's, it's like true. you're jumping into new waters and you figured this all out. Mm -hmm. Is there a distribution strategy while you're making the film? Is this already in motion or is this after the fact? It's a great, great question. And one of my biggest frustrations actually about the state of independent documentary filmmaking. Um, you know, for me, again, as I said, I was always really confident and some would say overconfident, but I wouldn't. I would just say confident um, in the fact that Again, I had a great character. I had a great story. I had a community. Um, we were in the New York Times in 2019 about just about this story. And it was, you know, a feature story. And so there were so many moments that I kind of could say, 
Okay, we have 38 million views already. We have a community of 75,000 followers. We've been in the New York Times. We've been on Now This. We've been on CBS Sunday Morning. Like, who doesn't want this story, right? That's how I approached it. Um, and so I was really confident about distribution and also knew that if everybody said no to me from the distributor standpoint, I would still be able to get it out there myself. And that was a privilege that I had because of the community that we had been able to build. But when time came around for distribution, I went the standard route that a lot of filmmakers go, if you can, which is do the festivals, have an agent, go out to distributors. For me, my experience, you know, nobody bit. While you're doing this, are your producers finding an agent? Are you, do you know someone? Do they approach you at the festival? I'm hustling it all. Okay. You know, gotcha. my producer is helping, but I'm really hustling, 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 hustling. I'm talking to people at Sundance, at a party that I'm not supposed to be at, <laughs> and getting a um, referral for two agents from a lawyer that I had just met from a really high-powered lawyer there. Like, that is the level of hustle that I have, you know? You've got disguises on, yeah, secret briefcases, exactly. all the I'm like, I came in here with an assignment and I'm going to ace the assignment, okay? And <laughs> that's, that's right. finding an agent, you know? So I did all that and, you know, laid out quite literally like all of the facts about this film and this story and the success and said, I need you, like, there's no way that somebody doesn't want this. Like, and nobody wanted it. And then the last minute we got an opportunity from uh, a studio, a pretty big studio who wanted to buy the film, but they wanted all rights in perpetuity and for a sum that I felt like wasn't enough. And so I thought, well, I can't, I'm not gonna give away my mom's story in perpetuity forever for this sum. I guess I'm just gonna have to distribute it myself. Like this doesn't make sense to me. And this sort of the same time PBS had reached out and said that they were interested in um, licensing the film. Independent Lens um, found me through, I think, like the doc labs, because they sort of like track, you know, all of the projects that are, that are kind of going through these labs. Gotcha. And so they had sort of tangentially, or at the same time, as this other studio said, hey, put in a bid. Um, and I thought, well, they won't handle theatrical or anything. They're only handling broadcast. Um, if I can pull off a marketing strategy where I release the film on Mother's Day of 2021 um, in theaters, because theaters were finally open then, then great, I'll have my theatrical taking place and then I'll have my broadcast and then we can figure out streaming. And so that's what we did um, and had two months to put together a theatrical strategy. That's not a lot of time. Not a lot of time because we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's all filmmakers do, sadly, is wait for other people to make decisions that, you know, often don't serve them. Um, so Sounds about right. Pretty you know, accurate. Yeah, I just like, it's crazy. Um, and so anyway, I did do that because as a first time filmmaker, I felt like I needed to at least try, you know, and if I could you know, take the typical routes, then I wanted to try those routes. Um, but then I hired um, or worked with Mia Bruno at Fourth Act Films. She does all self-distribution stuff. We were in 30 theaters. Um, we were our number one Apple News story over Mother's Day. We were on CBS Sunday Morning again. We were, you know, on the Tamron Hall show, literally everywhere. Um, and that really kicked off us in full steam before we made it to Independent Lens in November of 2021. PBS. You make a good point because I think a lot of times to go off what you were saying, 
independent filmmakers are so focused on getting the finished product together, they don't think about how much impact they can have if they think about all these moving parts of distribution. Yes, that and also like value the work, you know, like value your work. What I realize, and I'm a bit of an entrepreneur and, you know, I'm different than a lot of filmmakers in that, like, I really do care about selling the work too. You know, I don't care just about making the the work itself. I will say that my film is not, you know, like the most cinematic film that you might see from a documentary filmmaker. It's truth. It's honest. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's all of those things. But I'm also thinking about how does this, how can this resonate with people? Like how can, and how many people, and what is the number of what that looks like, right? Like how much should you get paid for this? Um, And so for me, it was always really important to like, you know, make it make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then like do it myself. One of the things too that I think is so amazing about this is it feels very impactful in terms of your film explores these social issues and there's many conversations surrounding this film after people have watched it. It it appears that you've worked with organizations surrounding it. Mm -hmm. As you were making it, was the goal to make a film that was socially impactful? Is that part of the process while you're in a corner with the camera filming your mom? You're also thinking about how is this going to be socially impactful? Yeah. I mean, as I said before, like social justice has always been a part of me. My mom, you know, raised two black kids as a white British woman in the middle of Boston in the 80s. You know what I'm saying? Like we fought racism often we were grew up without very much money you know um and yet had access to really rich worlds um and so i constantly had this sort of double consciousness and also this want to fight for justice for equality um and so while filming the film so many of the things that made me angry were the the activist part of me wanted to tell this film to to sort of contribute to the activism against ageism, for example, against financial insecurity, for example. But you can't do all of that in a film. You have to follow the story. You know what I'm saying? Um, And so I always knew that after the film that I could do an impact campaign that would allow for us to really tease out the themes within the film. Um, And so uh, we were able to get some funding um, for impact, for an impact campaign um, that ran from uh, November of 2020, which was our um, debut at Doc NYC, all the way through our uh, November of 2021, our PBS debut. And we worked with uh, AARP, um, where we had the number two most watched film in AARP history. And then National Council on Aging, the World Health Organization, we did a a screening with them because they have a decade of healthy aging campaign. So really thinking about who are the partners that could really speak to the issues within the film. How could we go deeper? How could we show it to audiences that it would really move? And how could we have a discussion afterwards? And so we wrote discussion guides. Um, We connected people with each other that might be helpful, things like that, Um, really to make it a robust campaign. So it went beyond just what you saw in 71 minutes, that people could discuss what they wanted to do in 30 seconds, in 30 days, in 300 days, if they really wanted to commit themselves to any of the issues, ageism, economic insecurity, or the need for intergenerational care. When you were planning, you know, at some point down the line to utilize this film for social impact, did you define what a successful social impact campaign could look like? Because a lot of times it's easy to talk in the abstract. Mm -hmm. It's like, we want this to be impactful. But what does that mean? And what did that mean to you? 
We wanted, we had some numbers uh, that we wanted to hit. So, for example, you know, one of the lighter things that we did was to create a PDF that uh, people could download that would. Ask some questions about their own bucket list. What what would they create? And the reason for that was because uh, during COVID, so many uh, elders were socially isolated, and this allowed them to sort of dream about what they would do when the world sort of opened back up again. Um, and uh, we wanted at least you know like twenty five hundred downloads of that packet, which we were able to to do. We wanted to show this to over um, like a thousand. Uh, individuals who we felt like were most in need of seeing this film. Either they were financially insecure or they were an older individual and socially isolated. And so we worked with different retirement communities, um, AARP, for example, to be able to, to reach that number. Um, we had over 10,000 people watch the film via AARP alone, and that was at no cost to them if they were an AARP member. And so we blew those numbers out of the water um, because we continued to do that. And then we had a really pie in the sky goal, which was how do we get um, folks to have a conversation, parents and their kids around financial stability? Um, how do we broach the conversation about what happens when your your parent is uh, at retirement age or beyond that? Like how much money do they have to survive? How invested will you have to be? What is the plan, right? These questions that we don't talk about. It can be a sensitive issue. I think sometimes we're we're afraid to actually speak about the truths that exactly. exist. Exactly. And that still remains the hardest goal of ours um, to really unravel um, because people are so personal, because either young people are afraid to ask their parents or their parents are too prideful or too discreet to to talk about it. And, and so we're really kind of still struggling with that and trying to find partners who can help us broach that conversation. So this is an ongoing uh, yes, campaign. Yes, it's definitely slowed down um, as I think about new opportunities and new jobs and new gigs. But the film is out in the world. People are still, you know, just coming into contact with the film. And so the conversation will continue to go on and we will facilitate as much as we can from this point moving forward. And it's only going to get more and more important. I think this film will only gain in relevance, which was part of the reason I didn't want to sell away all the rights was because... Every day, 10,000 people are turning 65 plus in this country every day, and that number is only going to grow. And so uh, more and more older people are going to live longer on less, and they're going to want a film like this that shows them in their lived reality. Um, and so I think there are a lot more things that we can do moving forward. One thing that when I was watching the film that struck me is I'm not at retirement age, thankfully, because I have a lot of saving to do. But, you know, it, it really struck me. The issues explored in this film are ones we can't outrun, right? We all age. That's the inevitable. Has making this film changed your perspective in how you navigate life, how what your work means to you and what your goals are? Um, yes and no. Um, yes. I'll start with no uh, because... I have only ever had a quote-unquote real job uh, for two years, in my first two years out of college. Um, the jobs at CNN and MTV were contract jobs. I was contracted to do some work. So my parents, I think their hard work allowed for me to live a life where I was educated and could figure 
out how to navigate money and jobs and stuff on my own. So I'm so thankful that they sacrificed so much for me. With that said, I think in having run my own ship for the last, you know, 13 years or so, uh, I don't ever have an interest in working full time for an employer because I, I think more and more as we're seeing with these labor unions and stuff, it's like, People don't trust employers, right? And frankly, employers are doing what's in their best interest or the best interest of their shareholders, not always what's in the best interest of their workers. And I think a lot of people are really waking up to that to say like, why am I working so hard? Why do you have access to me at 9 p.m. when I'm trying to put together, put my child to sleep and you think you have full access to me when you're not willing to give me six months off when I have another kid? You know, like you're, it's just the the balance between employer and employee relations is so so off right now where where uh, the president of a company or CEO of a company can take 65 times what their lowest employee is making. I mean, that's bonkers. So the world is waking up to that. I'm certainly woke to it um, and, and think that that is really critically going to need to change or we are in really, really dire straits. Yeah, it's an upcoming crisis. Yeah. Something does not change. Yeah, and you're living till 90, right? Like, I mean, they say that millennials are going to live till, on average, till 90 years old at least, right? If we're at least in America, if we're le- living till 90 years old, do you think you're ever going to be able to save enough to actually live you know, that long? Like, let me tell you, Jacob, the answer is no. Um, there has to be an exit strategy, yeah. I guess, somehow. Like and what? nobody's like, okay, like the math isn't mathing, you yeah. know, like this isn't adding up. Um, Feels like we just all have our fingers in our ears being like, well, well yeah, I'm not listening. we'll figure it out. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it is, it's a really, really serious issue. Yeah, we can't solve that today, unfortunately. I, I wish we could I be know. like, listeners, here's what you do. <laughs> and I don't mean to make it be really kind of like, dun, 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 you know, but- No, you're, I mean, these are the realities you're speaking to, These right? are the realities. But, you know, the, the light part of the film is, and, and the story is that, like, ideally you have a community around you or one person who can make you feel like you have everything, like that can support you through the hardest, darkest of times. Um, maybe they bring you on a bucket list adventure, or maybe they just sit next to you. The most important thing to me is that I never do it alone. I never have to struggle through that alone. And so I always try and keep people close and be close to people who need me. And that's kind of all we can do, I think, is, as humans. It's important to remember. It's easy to forget about how that's kind of the true necessity of humanity. That's right. To have those connections. S- speaking in those terms, obviously this was a huge collaboration with your mother, <laughs> did that change your relationship with her in any ways? Looking back from when this journey started, when you filmed with her to now, has anything changed? Is it different? Do you see each other differently? Well, my mom lives with me and my partner now here in New York. Um, and so the story is ongoing. Um, okay. I think as it's capsuled to the film, however, Uh, I don't think our relationship changed. I think you noticed in the film and most people noticed that like we have this uh, bond that is just incredible. I mean, I feel so special and so lucky that I have always seen my mom as my team partner, my player, my best friend, um, the person I would fight for the most. Um, And so that didn't change. What changed for me was that I got to see my mom as human in making this film, not just as a mom, 
right? And I don't think a lot of us get that opportunity to sort of like see your mom face to face with her own regrets, to see her talk about them with you, um, to ask any question you ever had to your mom, to not leave anything dangling. I got all of those opportunities by making this film. And so in that way, we are bonded um, beyond, you know, but our relationship remains the same. But I now have a legacy, a deeper legacy to be able to pass on to anybody who ever asks about her after her passing, you know? And I feel really, really, really grateful to be able to have that opportunity. Um, now, living with my mom as an adult, um, <laughs> the, our relationship is like morphing and changing because she's getting older and like I'm, I'm, I'm caregiving in a lot of ways. But, you know, my mom is super active and like doesn't really need my help on a lot of things. But there are levels of care. There are frustrations. There are, you know, deeper moments of seeing somebody get older in front of you that I'm working through uh, now. So, yeah. It's complicated. Totally. I feel like I can only speak for America because that's where I grew up. But it feels like we don't really value the aging population a lot of times, even if it's our own family. At all. Yeah. At all. The older people are invisible in this society. They are thrown away. They are looked past. Everywhere you look is another sign that you should not get older. Though it is this really beautiful thing. You know, it, it really is a rite of passage to be able to sit and watch my mom sort of um, grapple with new things um, as she gets older. But the truth is, she's just as like vibrant and malleable and curious as she's always been. You know, she's just like... 10 feet away from me now versus, you know, in a whole other city. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, you're too curious today, mom. You're going to have to leave me alone. <laughs> no detective work today, right? mom. Exactly. Let's just chill on that for exactly. right now, please. <laughs> How did she... After the film was completed, did she speak about how it changed her life in any way? I don't want you to speak for her, but yeah. I wonder if you ever had those conversations. Yeah, and I, you know, we were on, we've been on a million interviews. So um, from what she said in other interviews, it changed her life. You know, I think my mom realized that she had an advocate in me. Knowing that she had an advocate really changed her life, um, and that that touches me um, forever. Beyond that, you know, my mom finally sees herself as the star she always is, which is a good thing and a bad thing. You know, like, that ego. <laughs> yeah, that ego. Listen, my mom will walk down the street and some she'll be talking to somebody and she's like, oh, you don't know who I am? And she'll just, <laughs> but, you know, like in some ways it makes sense because just on my way today to here, um, somebody on Instagram that I don't know DM'd me and said, um, hey, was your mom in Philadelphia yesterday? I know this is a weird question, but I swear I saw her in West Philadelphia. And I'm like... <laughs> Who A, who are you? Be like, we have sightings of my mom now. So she's totally like deluded. She believes it's like totally real. She's, she's living the influencer followers. lifestyle. Yeah. She's totally living. She's verified. She's totally living the influencer <laughs> lifestyle. And so it's wonderful that she like, she owns it. She really does. It's, it's, it is really beautiful. It's crazy. It is like her crazy. life changed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. So. To be a housekeeper in a hotel in Boston that nobody has ever heard of to, you know, being this global viral sensation you know like it it must be she's living she's just living with a capital l when you look back on that journey from where you started you know making this feature film to now is there anything that you think of that you carry with you the most you know 
Jacob, I think so much of my journey as a filmmaker was 90% believing that I had a story that was worthy of telling, but there was always 10% of fear that it wouldn't happen. And particularly because it was a personal film, every no meant so much more to me. Having gone through the experience and having had time to reflect on it, I'm not scared anymore to tell any story that I ever want to tell. I don't question my abilities anymore. You can Google me and know what I have the capacity to do. And that fills me with so much light and so much confidence. That's not arrogant confidence, but this industry at every turn will tell you, you no know, and tell you, you cannot do something that you don't have the connections, the audience, the resources, the power. And it makes filmmakers feel powerless, but I don't feel powerless. I did it myself. I did it on my own terms and I did it for my mom and look how far it's gone. Um, and so I walk through the world so much lighter with so much more power and so confident that any story that I believe is strong enough to tell will make it out there. And I, 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 I hope that more filmmakers, more storytellers are filled up with the feeling that I have now. And if they're ever sort of doubting that they have the ability, you know, I would just say keep pushing through it because this feeling is, there's no greater feeling to walk to any room and not be afraid. Jean-Pierre, I appreciate you spending this time with us today. You will always have priority over Carson Daly if you want to book some time here. So just know that and thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes. <laughs>